0: Well, here we go again, Nina, you know, more audio medicine from Green Zone Hero and, you know, Bob Dvorak, you know, what's interesting about this one is, and it was very poignant to me at the very end, is that people have been fighting for this country before we were a country. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it seems like he also pointed out that fighting is part of the human condition and, you know, maybe someday in a perfect world, we don't have that, but but we have to deal with it. and what a country we live in because Mm -hmm. every single american that's here can look back through their family lineage and somebody in their family fought somewhere to get to this place in time
1: right absolutely i I, there's an art to telling a story and i love that he's dedicated his life and his commitment and passion to to sharing the story and and literally risking his life to be able to share the story and i i loved how he shared with us at the end um the audience wasn't able to hear, but he said, "You're either in the front or anywhere else," and he chose to be in the front so that he could share that story and just how amazing that he was able to journal about it, so that he could really come back and share that story. And that's a benefit that us Americans get to get to read about.
0: That's a great point, Nina. And uh, again, I just hope that everybody continues to listen to Straight Out of Combat Radio. We're audio medicine, and what we do is we honor the wisdom of our veterans and. Our hope is to uh, continue to tell the stories, continue to have you listen to them, and continue to be proud of the great country in which we live—the United States of America. Thank you, Nina. Thank you for listening, everybody out there.
1: Thank you, John. Your steely-eyed killer shadow in the night.
2: You were born to fight.
0: Welcome to Straight Outta Combat Radio, Audio Medicine by Green Zone Hero where we honor freedom to improve business
1: straight out of combat radio is the platform the voice for veterans to share their personal stories and we honor their wisdom and we want to diminish the negative stereotypes of veterans
0: my name is john krotech i'm a u.s army veteran and i was an nbc nco
1: and i'm nina herman u.s army veteran and i was a finance officer
0: Bob Dvorak is a war correspondent, or was a war correspondent, assigned to Army Combat Pool No. 1 in the 82nd Airborne Division during Desert Storm. A former national writer based in New York City for the Associated Press, Bob worked as a journalist for more than 40 years and has authored five books, including Battle for Korea. He is also a U.S. Army veteran himself, whose father served in the Navy during World War II, and whose oldest brother served with the 11th Armored Cavalry Regiment during Vietnam. Inducted into the inaugural class of the Uniontown PA High School Hall of Fame, he has received several national, state, and local writing awards. Now at 67 and living in Pittsburgh, he is also married with two daughters and five granddaughters. Welcome, Bob Dvorak.
2: John, it's great to be here, but at my age and what I've been through, it's great to be anywhere.
0: <laughs> I hear you on that, man. You're like my older brother. We talked earlier, and you know, you know, my dad was from Pittsburgh.
2: Uh, yeah, we you mentioned that a little bit. You got the Western Pennsylvania connection.
0: Yeah, something going on there. He, uh, of course, he left the hood back in 1956, and uh, you know, ended up staying in Florida the rest of his life. But anyhow, this is about you. Um, We're happy and thrilled to have you here. Appreciate your service for sure, and uh, for being with us on Straight Outta Combat. What we'd like to to first start out with, Bob, is tell us about you, man. Tell us how you grew up and why you did the things you did.
2: All right, and it's uh, you know your audience is in uh, in luck. You're about to meet a fossil. Uh, (laughs) I I I was one of uh, nine children raised outside of Uniontown, Pennsylvania was a 1967 graduate of uh, Uniontown High School. Uh, as I mentioned, my father was in um, uh, the Navy in World War II and his last port of call was Hiroshima after they dropped the bomb. Oh gosh. And uh, uh, Navy regulations said you weren't allowed to carry a camera, but uh, that didn't stop him. He's got uh, he's got a photographic journal of that service. And uh, my older brother, 2 years older than me, uh, was uh, was a draftee, and uh, he served with the Air Cab Troop, uh, the 11th uh, Armored Cavalry Regiment in Vietnam, uh, 69 and 70. And uh, me, uh, I happened to have the last draft, uh, last lottery number in the last draft ever held in 1972. So I got into the Army as a draftee just as it was uh, transitioning to the all-volunteer force that we have today. Right. And... So- uh, in uh, 1990, I was working uh, in New York City as a national writer with the Associated Press, and the boss walked by and said, hey, I want you to go uh, to Saudi Arabia to cover the war. And I said, for, for how long, two two weeks, two months, two years? And he said, for as long as it takes, and, and I was in. So that I was off to a, a war zone in, in Saudi Arabia and uh, ended up On a combat pool with the 82nd Airborne Division, so uh, naturally lucky, I guess.
0: Well, that was desert. I mean, obviously a turbulent time in Vietnam, and you know, and you come from a line of um, of military personnel or military uh, service people. Uh, I know a lot of them came out of the Pittsburgh area. My dad, one of them. But so, what was that like? What was tell us about tell us a little bit about high school though. Tell us what was going on then. What was Pittsburgh like?
2: Well, uh, and, you know, I'm south of Pittsburgh, uh, about 50 miles south of Pittsburgh, but but the 60s were, you know, just such a, a dynamic time in the history of the country. Uh, you know, we all started off, uh, you know, uh, early 60s. The uh, nuns at St. Mary's Catholic School taught us how to hide under our desks during uh, the <laughs> Cuban Missile Crisis, but, uh, you know, that was averted. Um, you know, we were all devotees of a young president John Kennedy that said ask not what you can do for your country uh, or ask not what your country can do for you ask what you can do for your country and, and it was such a change with the uh, you know the uh, the music scene the rock and roll the uh, the British invasion the motown you know through the early part of the 60s it just seemed like a uh, you know a time you could be anything you wanted to be as long as you were willing to work for it in America. That's the way the early part of the 60s started. Then again, you got into things like, uh, you know, the Detroit race riots in 1967 and uh, some of the other stuff going on. It was, uh, you know, you had the assassination of John Kennedy and the assassination of Martin Luther King, the assassination of Robert Kennedy. And, uh, you know, it was time for all of us to just uh, uh, look around and see what was happening.
0: Of course, I was a little bit younger than you. I don't remember much about the 60s. You know, I was in grade school. You know, I was was out chasing lizards, but, you know, turbulent time, and you got to see that firsthand. And a lot of people did go to Vietnam, your brother, one of them. And uh, obviously, you know, there's always been controversy about that war. But one thing that I have noticed is that a lot of those Vietnam veterans really treat these veterans today pretty well. But, you know, but so fast forward. So you started writing, you became a journalist, you're in New York City, and then you're getting ready for your first combat mission
2: i just want to add one other thing from the 60s uh there are people who say if you can remember the 60s you weren't there but then there were us those of us who were in the 60s and we'll never forget it you can't forget it it was uh, you know part of our lives it's true that the uh vietnam guys got sent over to fight a war uh that became very unpopular while they were over there uh, but this band of brothers has stuck together i'm actually writing another book right now about the uh, uh, 3rd Brigade, Golden Brigade of the 82nd Airborne, that was sent on an emergency mission right after the Tet Offensive. They blunted that offensive and uh, stayed in country for 22 months. And like most missions of the 82nd, it started out as a secret mission. You know, they they got into it. I I will say this about those guys, my brother and uh, those in Vietnam. They had each other's backs. Back then, and they still have each other's backs. But made a vow, I guess, to themselves that no future generation of American warrior would ever be forgotten. And I think that's why they're uh, so active in their uh, uh, in in welcoming back current day warriors from their missions in Iraq, Afghanistan, or wherever it may be, because they didn't get the welcome home that they deserved
0: thats so you know I'm glad you stated it the way you did you know we one of our, our in fact our very first uh, interviewee on straight out of combat was a Vietnam veteran Dan Ploger and he said you know it's an unspoken rule that you don't talk about combat but but he says now is the time that we should be talking about it and we need to change that so thank you for pointing that out Bob I think it's important to, to recognize the Vietnam veteran for sure oh absolutely
2: my my uh, my whole Point of view is having grown up in the '60s and then having seen the army and the military operate in Desert Storm and then just keeping tabs on everything since uh, since 9/11. Uh, I look at the guys who served post uh, not post 9/11 as the, uh, my little brothers. I mean, we we all this is a family. Uh, people talk about the one percent and that's a statistic, but uh, if you ever deployed overseas and uh, uh, we're in a combat zone. You're part of a very select few of people. And it's a, a brotherhood and a sisterhood. That means it's a family. So that's the way I look at
0: it. Well, thanks for, again, pointing that out. What, so what did you see in Saudi Arabia? What was it like?
2: Well, actually, you know, Saudi Arabia is a very, uh, it's, a, it's a veiled country. It's, a, you know, run by a king. It's the home of Islam. They don't have a tourist bureau. Outsiders aren't welcome. And yet, uh, the uh, uh, Saudis uh, allowed the U.S. military to uh, stage and uh, do the buildup, uh, the invasion of Iraq to uh, overturn the uh, their invasion of Kuwait. So you know, you get to see and do a lot of things that nobody else can do. And uh, I was there early enough in that deployment to uh, you know to see the Marines, the various Army units. Uh, In the field, uh, the Navy operating in the Red Sea and the Arabian Sea. Of course, the U.S. Air Force that had bases in Saudi Arabia and all around the peninsula. So I got to see, in my time there, the uh, uh, various branches of the uh, U.S. military at work on government time. They were there to do their business.
0: Of course, the strategy that that they used, they employed... I understand that a lot of it came from Vietnam. You know, pound them with air superiority to soften them up, and then the drive into Kuwait to to push them out.
2: Well, there was, and it's a you know sort of a, a nuanced point. But the senior officers and the senior NCOs, the sergeants, the backbone of the army, all were experienced Vietnam vets, and they had made a vow to themselves. It said. We're not going to repeat the same mistakes. We're not going to do things the old way. We'll gather everything in overwhelming force and uh, use everything we have in the arsenal. And if we're going to fight this war, we're going to do it the way it should have been fought. It was a combined arms force of uh, air power, armor, and infantry. It was one of the reasons why that war was run so Efficiently and successfully. Not that you know people didn't suffer, not that people didn't die, but they kept the casualties to the to a minimum and, and really just went at them with everything they had in the arsenal.
0: I think it was over 30 days of air force, and then in short order, you know, they were able to go into Kuwait and push those enemy forces out. Did you did you witness the long lines of prisoners and the uh, the torching of the oil wells? Did you see all that?
2: apprehended a group of prisoners myself, actually, <laughs> and it's a funny story. No, the, the, the people in front of us, and the, and the airborne was on the uh, far western flank, 300 miles from Kuwait. That's how big this operation was. In the middle of this was the, uh, the uh, armored force, the 7 Corps, with uh, four armored divisions. I mean, to see a U.S. Army uh, armored division in motion in, uh, in battle... It's an incredible sight. When we moved into Iraq on the western flank to make sure the road was open and to uh, watch the backs of the armored forces, the, the people in front of us did not want to fight. They had been bombed for 35 days. They were left out in the desert and just kind of abandoned. And when we showed up, the, the white flags went up uh, and they started to uh, surrender en masse and uh, came across a group of like 10 Iraqis they were part of a, a, a tank company, and they had abandoned their tanks because uh, the Tens were just taking them out at their leisure. These poor wretches were on the side of the road, and uh, gave them some uh, M.R.E.s, U.S. Army rations, and some starburst fruit chews. Um, put them on the road south, and just kept going. So it, it was quite a sight. Some of the some of the guys said that uh, this hadn't happened since World War One, when you saw. Entire army formations just uh, surrendering and mass like they did. Uh, it, it, it left quite an impression on me.
0: So more or less, they obviously the morale was gone, but they there was no fight in them at all. They were they were no, that,
2: that that was gone. You know, like I said, thirty five days of bombing that'll put the uh, 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 fear of God in you. And uh, you know, the airborne was conducting its own uh, Apache deep strikes uh, with their assault helicopters pounded them with some artillery. So it was, it was a long range war. There wasn't, uh, you know, I I witnessed one firefight up close, maybe a couple of hundred yards away at night. And you could see the tracers going back and forth, but it wasn't anything like that close contact in Vietnam. They just drove them back with artillery, Apache helicopters, and of course the air forces. So like a boxer with a long reach. Uh, they just kept pounding them and never didn't take any hits in return.
0: How about the the torching of the Basra oil fields? Was that, that obviously the pictures uh, we saw back home was a, was a mess?
2: Yes, and uh, you know I didn't witness that personally. Like I said, we were on the far western flank, a couple of three hundred miles away. Uh, but it shows you what this regime, what this uh, uh, Saddam Hussein was willing to do. He would use those oil wells and torch them to uh, create a smoke screen to try to keep uh, U.S. troops from uh, reaching Kuwait. It wasn't successful, but it was like, uh, people I talked to, it was like going through the depths of hell with uh, fires raging and smoke overhead and the sky was raining crude oil. It was uh, was pretty amazing. And, uh, of course, uh, one thing, John, we were... uh, so concerned about being uh, hit with ke- their chemical weapons and their nerve gas that uh, we were actually taking uh, uh, nerve agent, anti-nerve agents, these pills, would take a pill every eight hours they was supposed to help us survive a uh, chemical attack, and we were all dressed in mop gear, which is a uh, 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 charcoal-lined <laughs> outer garment, you know, we all look like, I don't know, uh, astronauts on the moon for mummies dressed up in these outfits but it was precautionary gesture to make sure that uh, if he did use any of that chemical stuff that we were able to withstand it
0: well you know thank god that he didn't i know that was a big fear in, in the later conflicts too but i i know all about mop gear mission-oriented protective posture and
2: there you go.
0: We used to smoke and joke and say, "I wonder if the stuff really works." We, of course, we didn't want to find out. And I, I, hear exactly what you're saying. That that's a huge fear. And of course, you know, we learned from World War One that that's a nasty affair of chemicals.
2: Oh, listen! I, th- there were times when the alarms would go off at three in the morning, and you got to get out of that mummy sleeping bag and slap that mask on in in nine seconds, you know, you just sit there, and you wait, and you anticipate, and all these things go through your mind, and somebody will later, maybe 30 minutes later, sound and all-clear, and say, how do you know it's (laughs) all-clear? I mean, you know, what am I supposed to do, just go back to sleep now, or what?
0: Yeah, of course, you probably got no sleep, like the canary in the coal mine, you know? It's like, holy cow, what are you guys doing to me? But, so how long were you in country? For well, the... it
2: was uh, uh, October to March, five months in country, and, and you know maybe that doesn't sound like much, but when you're in the desert, that every day seems like an eternity. So uh, I was there at the beginning, went through the middle, and I was there at the end. So it was a uh, you know the, the full ride. Hmm.
0: And then you know transition. Obviously, there's a lot going on today with with you know further conflict and. Iraq and Afghanistan and other places, and very prolonged, not nearly as short as Desert Storm. And we're starting to see some significant uh, challenges for these transitioning young men and women and, and even people connected to the service in a conflict area. What did you see or how did you feel on your transition coming back home?
2: That's different. I mean, once in once. Once you cross the line of departure and they say, okay, you're invading Iraq uh, today uh, and you go through that combat zone, that situation, you're on a battlefield, you know, you've got to deal with, you know, all the emotions that go with it. And I know it's different for everybody, but there was a point where I dug my own hasty grave, you know, made peace with myself and made peace with my maker accepted the fact that there was a good, good chance I might die in this situation. And once you do that, then you're able to not worry about it and just do your job. So I went through that. So when you come back, uh, it's like going through the same door, but all your molecules have been rearranged. I, I, I know I was different. When I, when I got on the bird to come back to the States, it was like, okay, I just got a second chance. A second chance in life, it's up to me to uh, to make the most of it. Now, I thought that, you know, one thing that I will say when, and I flew home with the troops, uh, when we got to New York City, there was a parade at the airport, and it was, like, completely different that, that America had gone through this guilt trip about Vietnam, and they were going to make darn sure that they welcomed these people home. And the troops kept saying, I guess this is... Uh, you know this is our reward and, and, and this is a way we can thank Vietnam vets for the things they didn't get. Um, now of course I thought well what I got home everybody wants to know what what happened and what went down because it was operational security and you couldn't couldn't say what was really happening you always run into that guy at the top of the food chain that says uh, ah that was over a hundred hours I was in a war I was in a real war <laughs> nobody Nobody really cares what it was like, so it was up to me to write it, which is why I got hooked up with Tactical 16 and finally wrote my journal and got my book published about what it was like.
0: What What's the title of that book?
2: It's called Drive On, and it's the uncensored war of Bedouin, Bob, and the All-Americans. That's well, the 82nd Airborne.
0: Let's talk okay. about that. Let's. When did you start yeah. it? Did you start it right after you got back, or did you wait a while, or...?
2: I kept the journal while I was there, and I had it in my notebook. So I had the material, and when I got back and the guy says, I, you know, I was in a real war, I just kind of <laughs> put it away. I, you know, I, I didn't talk about it. You know, it's not something that people understand what you're talking about. And I just had him sitting in, my, uh, in a file cabinet at home. It always bothered me that this was the biggest story of my life. The biggest experience I would ever go through, and I think that anybody who goes through any combat situation or any war would agree that it's uh, you know the biggest experience, the seminal moment of their lives. So he was there, sitting there, and one day, well, when I got uh, when I retired from the uh, as a journalist, I said, you know what, I'm going to write that story. I'm going to write that book, even if it kills me. And uh, that's what I did. That was that was my way of completing my mission
0: how did, was Bedouin Bob, is that the nickname your peers gave you, or was that a name you pulled out of the, the experience?
2: No, that was given to me by a major in the 82nd Airborne. <laughs>
0: Tell us about that. Did they give you a, a plaque with that on it? How did that happen? Tell me.
2: <laughs> well, I do, I do have a plaque with it on, but that came much later. Uh, we were, uh, you know, I hooked up with the Airborne at their base camp. We moved up to a tactical assembly area right on the border of Iraq. And I must have taken to the desert so well they uh, gave me this nickname, Bedouin Bob, because, you know, I'm living right out there with the troops. We were going out on night patrols and night ambushes and, you know, whatever else. And part of that was having the Army experience and the Army training where you know what a unit does, what a platoon is, what a company is, what a battalion is, what a brigade does. And I adapted so well to the... uh, to the desert and being back in the army uh, eating mres that uh, they gave me the nickname bedouin bob and that became my war name
0: that's awesome that picture the photograph on the on the cover drive on is that one of your hooches you had set up that, that
2: was a hasty that i dug inside iraq um and uh, you know it's it's uh, it's really neat so you know it wasn't dug during the war <laughs> but it was uh, uh and and for those who don't know uh, you dig a, a, a hole in the ground that's wide enough and deep enough to get you under cover. You stack all the dirt on the north sides to block the wind. <clears throat> Maybe it'll absorb a piece of shrapnel if they drop some incoming on you. And uh, if if you take a direct hit, there's nothing anybody can do. But all they have to do is uh, shovel the dirt back on top of you because you dug your own hasty grave. Now that. That gets you in the mindset of knowing where you are and what you're about to do.
0: Yeah, that's a kind of a unique picture. Gives you—I know you guys didn't ride around with the flag all the time, did you?
2: No, and uh, you know that's an interesting thing. When we were in Saudi, flying the United States flag was uh, unauthorized. Uh, they didn't want the Saudis to think that they were taking over their country. <laughs> but these guys did You know, it happens in every war. Somebody has a flag stuffed somewhere. So when we got into Iraq and the war was over, uh, they declared a ceasefire. The flags came out just like they did at Iwo Jima or wherever else the American fighting man or woman is. They'll they'll put that flag out and say, we own this now. This is ours. And I, I guess if you notice, too, on the top of the Humvee, there's a... Uh, an orange panel, blaze orange.
0: I see that. Yeah. Uh,
2: yes, yeah, Just, that was just a subtle way of letting our own air force know that they shouldn't bomb us.
0: <laughs> um, we're friendly. Hey, don't hit the sun. V right. Yeah. Right. Now, you know, explain grace under pressure. What does that mean to you?
2: That's a, that's a, that was written by Ernest Hemingway. who was a war correspondent himself back in the day. And, uh, he described courage as grace under pressure. Uh, Courage has been described in several different ways. Uh, Eddie Rickenbacker in World War One said that courage is doing something you're afraid to do. And that's true. And then uh, Audie Murphy, the most decorated GI in World War II, described uh, courage as the determination to do what has to be done under the circumstances. And that's true. And I think that grace under pressure is a way of, you know, being able to do your job, even you know that the risk is there, the dangers are there, uh, but you've got to do what you got to do. you got to do what you came to do, there to do, and uh, that's what Grace Under Pressure means to me.
0: That's great. you know, And I, I know Drive On is not your only book. You, you, you're on, working on one now, and you've got four others. Is that how I take it?
2: Yes. Um, I did a, a, a military history. I did a history of the Korean War. With the uh, photographs from the files of the Associated Press, and uh, <clears throat> of course, Korea is still in the news today because that war uh, ended with a ceasefire, but not a peace treaty. So there's a state of war that's existed there since 1950. And uh, you know, the, when you hear the talk today, uh, you know, maybe, maybe we're going to have to go back there. I don't know. I hope not. That was a bloody mess.
0: What are the other What are the other books?
2: I did a, a, a couple of true uh, true crime books, nonfiction. One was on Jeffrey Dahmer, the serial killer, which was my first assignment when I got back from the war zone, and a, a stalker book called uh, "Someone Stalking Me" about a TV news anchor in Michigan that uh, that was murdered. And then I did a uh, book on the uh, Penn State scandal uh, called "Game Over" after Jerry Sandusky was arrested and. Uh, uh, before he was convicted of those horrific crimes up there against young people uh, that were part uh, that that went to his uh, charitable organization uh, the, the Second Mile. So those are the five books.
0: Well, you know, certainly stories that need to be told. You know, sometimes the human condition is uh, not sometimes it's always fascinating. But when you get the firsthand accounts and books that are well researched, they're definitely worth their weight in gold. You know, you can never. Never know too much, and it's always good to see the different perspectives. What's the book you're working on now?
2: Well, this was uh, uh, 3rd Brigade of the 82nd Airborne was deployed after the Tet Offensive and sent to Vietnam and stayed for 22 months. Little-known story, little-known. Uh, there's nobody. They didn't have an Ernie Pyle with them to write about it. story's been kind of sitting there, and I, I hooked up with these guys last August at the 82nd Airborne Convention, and they started telling me this story, and uh, they formed a, a last man's club, because, you know, uh, that was 50 years ago. Uh, hmm. The Aid catches up to people. They started, uh, they, they have a cabinet with a bottle of choice bourbon and a glass from Tiffany's, uh, so the last man in the brigade gets to have it. And they also... Uh, formed a uh, they're having made a legacy bowl it's a silver bowl bowl with gold inlets in it and they're gonna fill it up with some punch and drink from it and uh, all the glasses at the bottom have the slogan of the airborne all the way so uh, they're having a 50th reunion this June actually at West Point it's how these guys went over and fought and had each other's backs and you know we know what happened when they came home uh, greeted with indifference or just cold callousness but they stay together they, they uh, people who go through that kind of experience uh, have a bond that's unbreakable they stay together and they're uh, still going to celebrate uh, what their service they know who they are and what they did now there's a subtle little plot twist to this John if I can tell you if I can expand on it go ahead one of the this was in one of the companies and you know he got a platoon sergeant one of the guys was his radio telephone operator there's nobody closer to a platoon sergeant than his RTO they're connected at the hip they gotta sleep together eat together the sergeant ends up being a casualty April 4 1969 and uh, his RTO was there and you know, saw him being taken away in the medevac helicopter but he kept, for some reason, and he doesn't even know why he did this, he kept the sergeant's uh, shoulder holster with him all those years. Now, flash forward like 30 years, mm-hmm. and uh, the RTO, his name is Les Hayes from Kentucky, he'd spent 30 years of his life trying to find the family of Felix Condi, his platoon sergeant, just to say, I was there when he died. And he, he finally, in 2004, he found his son living in Texas, sent him a letter. The two reconnect. Now, the son was three years old when his father was killed, never knew his father. Now, all of a sudden, this guy, out of the blue, can tell him who his father was in the Army, how he died, and what he did. And actually, uh, Felix Condy was awarded posthumously the Medal of Honor. So he died in a you know very heroic action. The two reconnected, and the son adopted the RTO as his new father because he could fill him in on, on the details. And he named his daughter uh, Peyton Leslie Condi. He named uh, uh, Her middle name is Leslie after Leslie Hayes, who was his uh, brother in Vietnam.
0: That's an it's incredible story. story.
2: Now, they're going to dedicate a plaque at the Special Ops Museum in Fayetteville, North Carolina, it's a sidewalk plaque going into the Special Ops Museum. It's got Felix Condy's name on it. So you see how it comes full circle?
0: Absolutely. Then, that's, uh, that's an incredible and, story, and Bob. The,
2: brother, the, the bonds of brotherhood and sisterhood that form are unbreakable. And if, nothing, if nobody else in the world understands what it was like, these people do, and they keep that flame alive. So it uh, kind of gives me chills just talking about it.
0: Absolutely. Have you, is there a title for this book?
2: Not yet, but it's got to be something golden, because when the 3rd Brigade deployed, there was a, a three-star general in the 18th Airborne Corps told the brigade commander, uh, Bud Bowling, he said, Bud, everything your brigade touches turns to gold. An intelligence uh, uh, sergeant named uh, Gordon Duke Dewey heard that and said, hey, from now on, we're the Golden Brigade. So it was the Golden Brigade, and it's got to be something like Golden Legacy or Golden Brotherhood,
0: Golden Golden Stars or something, you know, something like, yeah. That's what it is. Fascinating story, and uh, looking forward to that one for sure. If you, Bob, if you had some wisdom, you know, after having been in a combat zone, and, you know, we hear about the stereotype of the combat veteran, so oftentimes it's negative. One reason why we're doing straight out of combat is to change that. But what would you want non-military-minded people to know about our combat veterans?
2: Well, um, and it's a—it's uh, such an intense experience that nobody who hasn't been there can really understand it. But I would tell anybody within earshot and said, "You have men and women who are willing to put on that uniform, take the step forward, knowing full well there's risk involved. They may lose their lives or be wounded and injured, or." Uh, emotionally damaged by this experience but they do it first for their country and the country that holds their family and they do it for each other for the guy to the left to the right they form this bond that um, you know is it's almost stronger than family in some instances when they come home I would tell you that it's a tough transition back from that that other world that other universe that you enter into and it does take some time to re the, the Part of you always stays over there, and part of over there comes back with you. So you're different. I would just tell anybody within the earshot that what these people do is just incredible. You see acts of valor and acts, uh, you know, that, that people just do what they have to do. And it's great to say thank you, but it's also nice to say, you know, if you ever wanted to talk about it or if you ever wanted to have a, a shoulder to lean on, you know I'm, I'm here too. Thank you for what you did, and uh, I, I appreciate uh, what you did for, for my country and for my own personal freedoms, because that's what it boils down to.
0: That's great. Uh, what, would, what do you want the young men and women who are coming back? What would you want them to know? What, you, what can you tell them about transition?
2: You're not alone. Yeah, it, it, what you went through was very personal, and I don't know the specifics of it, but I went through something similar, and I understand you're not alone, you You don't have to fight it anymore, it's over with, and if there was a particular loss, that uh, the way to always remember those who didn't come back, and those who don't come back are the real heroes, we all know that, that's, uh, that's just a given. And if you want to honor their memory and honor your own service, stay true to your code because the oath you take is never revoked. That there comes a point, there comes a time when you realize that being a veteran is something that's always going to be with you. So embrace it, adjust to it, make it part of your life forever. It's going to be with you anyway. Make peace with it and and move on having it with you in your backpack the whole time.
0: That's great advice and well-spoken. How, how can, Bedouin Bob, how can people get your book and how can they get in touch with you for more information?
2: Now, I do have a Facebook page and it's called Drive On. I have my own Facebook page too. But if people want to buy the book, the best way to get it, you can order it through Amazon or on barnesandnoble.com. But if you order it through me directly, I can get you an autograph copy, and the shipping's not too bad. So uh, use it at B as B is in Bravo, and my last name D V O R C H A K at msn dot com. So uh, uh, anybody wants a copy of it, and it's hey listen, it's been uh, airborne tested and airborne improved, approved. The grunts just loved it because somebody was with them and documented and uh, wrote down what it was like. Uh, to live in that desert and then go through that war. So be Devorcheck at msn.com. It's the best way
0: to get it. Well thanks for that. There you have it. Bedouin Bob Dvorchak, son of a veteran, brother of a veteran, giving us some words of wisdom. We're so thrilled to death to have him here today on straight out of combat. And we're, we're working hard together as a team to change and transform that stereotype of the combat veteran to something that's a lot more positive and to empower them. Again, thrilled to have you here on Straight Out of Combat, Bob. I look forward to the next. I'm looking forward to your Golden Stars book about the 82nd Airborne. I know you'll come up with a title. I ask everybody to please go to Tactical 16, check out the fine list of authors and Bob's book there. I know he'll get the other one up there. And if you get an opportunity, go to Facebook and like. Drive on. Did it myself. Not sure why I didn't. I had you on Facebook and the other name, but but it's all good. And anyhow, I just want to let people know out there that combat veterans are real people with real stories, and uh, they understand full well that freedom is not free, and I think that Bob DeVore chat today laid out some very good words of wisdom, and uh, we hope people will listen to our next episode, and uh, look forward to our next meeting, Bob.
2: If I could say one shout out to TAC16.
0: Oh, absolutely, uh, go ahead.
2: <laughs> you know, the, my book laid there, and I tried with various publishers and everything else, but it took... Iraq and Afghanistan war veterans who started their own publishing company because they know full well the power of writing to get this out, to get it down on paper, has a very healing quality to it that you kind of come to grips with all this stuff and you can let it go. Even the bad stuff, you know, just to clean out that wound. Uh, And it does have uh, an incredible... Uh, healing power to it. So I want to thank Eric Shaw and the people at Tactical 16 for bringing me on as a teammate. Even though I wasn't, it wasn't their particular war. They know that these things have a commonality to them. When you come home, we all have that that mark or that impression or something that stays with us. Good way to deal with it is to put it down on paper and uh, get rid of it.
0: Very well put. Appreciate that a lot, Bob, and absolutely check out Tactical 16. I know that they're adding more authors as we speak, all of them with important stories to tell, and we have so much to be proud of here in America, and we're so grateful that we have people like Bob that come back home and uh, can write these stories and others like him. So God bless America, and appreciate you, Bob Dvorak.
2: Hey, great to great, to my honor to have been here, uh, and uh, thank you for what you do on behalf of all of our veterans. And just to know you're not alone, we got your back. We still got your six before they burn it down. Better. T-